0: Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts. If you're uh, using the Bibles in the uh, chair pockets there, that's uh, page 1183. This time of year, there are typically uh, a good many people visiting with us. Let me give you a little uh, context for where we are in the, in the passage. We are in a series in the book of Acts. We're coming toward the conclusion. This is actually the 50th message uh, in the series. Acts 21 is where we are, starting at the 17th verse. And uh, when we last left the Apostle Paul, the message that he kept receiving from his friends was, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Some bad stuff's going to happen to you there. They, They seem to know it. Paul seemed to know it as well. One person, you might remember, Agabus, actually predicted that Paul would be bound Uh, And put into prison, Agabus actually acted this out so that Paul could see exactly what was going to happen to him. But Paul is intent on going because Paul believes that the Holy Spirit would even have him suffer for the gospel. And Paul has three reasons that seem to be on his heart for why he feels he needs to go to Jerusalem. First, he's bringing with him this large diaconal offering that he has collected from all of the Gentile churches that he has planted. And one of the reasons that Paul goes back to these churches is not just to see how they're doing and enjoy the fellowship with them and make sure that they're sticking close to the truth, but he's uh, he's gathering this offering uh, for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, It was known that the saints in Jerusalem were suffering. There had been a famine there. Um, And of course, the offering also had symbolic value because uh, it came from the hands of the Gentiles, the, the Gentile Christians. Paul wanted to make sure that the believers back in Jerusalem, uh, the, the Jewish followers of Jesus in Jerusalem specifically, knew that the Gentile followers of Jesus appreciated them and and appreciated what they learned from uh, their Jewish believers in terms of the promises of the the Old Testament that they were were unaware of so that they too could see promise and fulfillment in the gospel and and so by doing this uh, Paul says he see it in the in the letter to the Ephesians this is going to the gospel does this it brings down the dividing wall between races when there's ever there's struggles and trials and oppression and those things between the races, when the gospel moves in and we see that we all need to be saved by grace, that dividing wall comes down. Paul wants to see that happen. Second reason was simply to evangelize the unbelieving Jews. We might call them old covenant Jews who are going into town for the Pentecost and he wants to preach to them Jesus as the Messiah. And number three, he comes to report to the Jerusalem council and to be accountable for his work as a missionary. Here's what I did. Uh, here's what I've been doing, uh, past judgment on, on how I've been doing what I've been doing. So follow along as I read. That's the context of where we are. Verse 17 of chapter 21. When he, we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, Walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, uh, this is a, a a passage, a text that has been naughty for centuries. Uh, open it us up to us, uh, show us by the power of your Spirit with great clarity what it's about, that we might understand, that we might profit, that we too might be conformed to your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, uh, this the, the latter part of this passage uh, starts a, a very famous last chapter in Paul's ministry. I'm not going to spend too much time on on uh, the moment here where Paul gets captured and put in chains. More on that next week when we look at a, a greater portion of what's happening there. But I do want to focus this morning on this idea of the law and uh, the gospel that Paul was preaching and what the elders were saying to Paul and how he related to those elders and what he then did about what they told him to do, and so on and so forth. Our points today are just two. We're going to look at a God-centered obedience. Paul obeys here. Why does he obey? A God-centered obedience and a grace-centered gospel. A grace-centered gospel. By that I mean, what is our relationship to the law today as believers? Okay, A God-centered obedience and a grace-centered gospel. Now, I mentioned uh, a moment ago that Paul is, in part, giving report to presbytery on his mission work, and I mean presbytery. The word there in verse 18, he's giving a a report to the elders, the the presbyteroi there. That's a a plural word. And uh, Paul may be an apostle, but just like me and just like all of you as members of this church, Paul was under the authority of the elders, too. Paul is a man under authority. And in a sense, that is what Presbyterian means. It means a a college or a collegial group of elders. And Paul submits himself to these elders. One of the elders mentioned here by Luke is James. This is James, not James the apostle. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Paul mentions James in Galatians 2, calling James a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, along with Peter and uh, and with John. Uh, but Paul isn't just submitting to James because he's Jesus's brother, as well as an elder. It says there very specifically, Luke says in verse 18, all the elders were present. James might have been the one delivering the news as maybe a, a head elder, if you will, but, but this is the determination. What goes on here is the determination of all the elders. And Paul puts himself in submission to them. And when I say submit, I mean submit. Uh, he starts off by giving these elders a report in verses 19 and 20, relating to all the elders, one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He hadn't seen these guys for years. So it must have been quite a report. Quite a lengthy report, quite a storied report report of all the different cities that he went to, all the people that he met, uh, how the gospel had moved out, uh, how sometimes they were were attacked, uh, how sometimes they were thrown out of uh, various um, synagogues, uh, some of the miracles that had happened. What a report this must have been. And it says there in the text that they all rejoiced and they gave glory to God but the elders have their own report for Paul as well. Uh, Paul has his list of gospel success stories, but for the elders who have to oversee the whole church, there are some problems going on that Paul is maybe aware of, maybe not. And pay close attention to the ethnic and Old Testament issues that are in play here. I think some of these, there, there, there's some application for us here. Pay attention, close attention to the ethnic and Old Testament issues that are in play here. All of the elders of the Jerusalem church are Jewish, Jewish converts to Christianity, Jews who accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah. They are not, hear me now, they are not worried or concerned with the relationship that Gentiles have with the Old Testament ceremonial laws, more on that in a second. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments here, but the things like circumcision and eating kosher, those sorts of things. All of that, remember, the relationship of the Gentiles to that law, all of that is settled. All of that was done in Acts chapter 15 by these elders, by these same elders. In fact, in verse 25, James reminds Paul that, that that was all dealt with by a letter that has already been sent out to all the churches. Now, the issue here is the relationship between the Jewish Christians to that same Old Testament ceremonial law. Now, <clears throat> you know that there are divisions in the churches today between Uh, the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Catholic Church, and there are Protestant Church as well. One of the things that unites the Church for centuries, Eastern Church, Roman Catholic Church, Protestant Church, is a division between uh, sections of the law, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Now, I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but real quickly... By the moral law, we mean the Ten Commandments. And when we talk about the moral law, that does not go away. How we maybe see the moral law, its usefulness to believers, changes a bit, but it's still in play. We still cannot steal. We still cannot covet. We still cannot uh, desire our neighbor's wife and all those sorts of things. We still have to keep God first, you see. But there's the civil law, and the, uh, while that uh, kind of gets worked out a little bit differently because we're uh, uh, not a theocratic nation here where, where God rules over everybody the same way, equally. There, uh, we, we live in a, a, a secular society, a civil society. Uh, how that law gets worked out may change, but, but much of the civil law is still the bedrock for the laws that we have. And so we have to wisely think through the civil law. But the ceremonial law, it's always been agreed to by Christians. Goes away. Because the ceremonial law was like a signpost. It would be like it would be like me saying, Let's gather at Hope Presbyterian Church for worship. And we all stood around the sign out front, and we never came in the building. Uh, the, the idea was the ceremonial law was a signpost that pointed to Jesus, and that once the reality is here, Jesus Christ has come and he's risen from the dead and our sins are forgiven and we're united to Christ by faith, we don't need the signs anymore such that the ceremonial law doesn't have to be observed anymore. The book of Hebrews says, don't hang out in the shadows anymore when the reality is here, you see. So the the Christian church has always agreed on on that. Here, James lays out in verses 20 and 25, Uh, some some of the thinking that's going on, some of the confusion, too, that's going on about this in the early church. He says, You see, Brother Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So not, not the Ten Commandments as custom. That's the law but the ceremonial things, you see? In other words, these Jewish Christians, these Jews have accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah, although some have not, uh, but they're offended by what they hear Paul doing. They think that Paul is preaching the Jews should abandon their Jewish way of life. Now, Paul must have been so disappointed in this. This must have just cut him to the heart. He must have been so discouraged. Paul has been planning to come to Jerusalem for almost two years at this point. And wherever he'd gone through Asia and Europe, he's collected this large offering from the Gentiles because he has his brother and sister Jews. Remember, Paul is a Jew by birth as well. He's a, you know, he, he gives his credentials. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul had his Jewish brothers and sisters on his heart when he 's collecting this offering because he wants this unity between Jew and Gentile, and this presbytery would probably you know, probably would have been dramatic if you imagine this because here 's Paul again hasn 't seen these brothers uh, for two years, and he he must have come in with these heavy bags you know they, 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 they don 't have checks in those days they don 't have debit cards or credit cards or or cash uh, paper money. They have these bags, these bags of gold coins and silver coins, and he brings all this in. But not only does it seem like James and the elders are disinterested in the offering, James doesn't even mention it here, but there's no talk of Paul's theology being defended by his brother elders in the church at Jerusalem. After all, Paul had sought approval for his teaching from these very same elders. Everything that he's taught, he ran by these guys and they're not defending him. He was a man under authority. They knew Paul. They knew his teaching and they loved Paul and love hopes all things and love believes all things and they could have responded to these charges. They could have said, you know what? We trust Paul. We know exactly what he's teaching. We are going to protect his reputation until you can produce evidence that Paul is actually teaching against the law, um, we're we're, we're with him. Uh, We forget, by the way, that Paul has written already, circulated already the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the Romans. Those letters are already out there by the time this Presbyterian meeting starts. So his teaching is on the record, and these these elders, they could have said to people, hey, this is the Paul. This is the Paul who, before a second missionary journey, had Timothy circumcised, even though Timothy's half Jewish, for the very purposes of not wanting to create a stumbling block and to, to honor those who honor the law still, the ceremonial law. And that it's never been Paul's practice to in any way unnecessarily offend any Jews by having them violate their conscience. We just heard uh, Vincent read from uh, 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews, Paul said, I became a Jew. So I, I did the ceremonial laws to not create a stumbling block so that I could tell them about Jesus as Messiah. Or they could have walked the accusers through Paul's actual theology. They they could have shown that Paul never said or never taught that Jews should dismiss or not obey the Ten Commandments. Or they could have just said, look, here's the scroll. Read Galatians. Read Romans. But instead, this presbytery is pretty tough. Given that Paul, while he is under authority, is an apostle. But here's what they say to him. Verse 23. Do, therefore, what we tell you. Do, therefore, what we tell you to do. Now, what you need to know, we can't help but get ahead of ourselves here. What you need to know is that by obeying these orders that Paul is about to obey, Paul is placed in harm's way when he goes to the temple and is fingered there as this troublemaker. He's falsely accused, Trophimus, they, they say, they, they assumed the Trophimus, a Gentile been brought into uh, the, the holier place of the temple, but they had no evidence for it. But they, they, they assumed that he had done that. So they, they, they put him in chains, even though Paul, Paul hadn't done that. This starts the rest of Paul's life, which for the rest of it, he's going to be in custody. He's going to be under Roman house arrest because of obeying his brother elders at this Presbytery meeting. And uh, they they think, of course, the elders think that this public act, and I don't have time to get into the origins of the Nazarite vow in Judaism, but this public act of taking, again, the Nazarite vow, uh, which, by the way, Paul had already done. If you go back to Acts chapter 15, verse 18, Paul's done this already. He's already showed his willingness to do these sorts of things. He'd already cut his hair and done all of that. Uh, he, they thought this would all put to rest all of this criticism and they, they didn't think it would hurt Paul's conscience to do it. And they basically are telling Paul, you know what, if you do this, everyone's going to be happy. All the tensions will go away. But that's not what happens. Paul's life is forever changed and this act does not change anybody's hearts. This appeasement to the ceremonial law does not, does not change anybody. Even more than that, One of the tragic ironies, I think, that we're supposed to see here, but maybe from a 2,000 years distance, we don't. This is, when this happens, this is A.D. 58. Now, if you know your New Testament history and know what happens just after the, 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 the New Testament canon is closed, one of the things that's prophesied, Jesus prophesies it, happens in A.D. 70 is the whole temple is destroyed. The whole temple... All of its systems, all of its ceremonial washings and sacrifices it all 's going to go away in twelve years anyway, and uh, at some point we 're going to get the, the the letter to the to the Hebrews that explains chapter and verse exactly why very carefully paul 's done it already but 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 shows how all of these washings and these rituals and 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 and, and uh <clears throat> even our our hereditary birth and some of these things, that was all shadow to show us a reality of what it is to trust in Jesus for our our salvation. But Paul obeys. But Paul obeys. Paul obeys even though it was bad counsel that could have been handled differently. And you can almost hear Paul's thinking. It's unwise counsel, but he's not being asked to sin, and he is under submission to these elders. Now, I need to move on, but, but I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think for a moment. Every one of us here, whether we are talking about our relationships as husbands and wives, whether we're talking about employers and employees, whether we're talking about ourselves as citizens of the state. Some here are in the military in this congregation. Of course, parents and children, we are all, all of us under some kind of authority. Every one of us. You know, every time I hear someone complain about issues in the church or the family that the Bible has, some things that the Bible has to say about authority, particularly in the church and in marriage, And by the way, it's usually a critique of something the Apostle Paul says, even though Jesus lived his entire earthly life uh, under authority too, under the authority of the Father, even though he's fully equal to, to the Father. This passage, this passage, and Paul quietly submitting to authority is never mentioned. It never comes up. It's always Paul's the oppressor. Paul's come up with these rules. Paul's come up with extra biblical laws. Paul's come up with stuff that Jesus would never do. Paul, 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 Paul. He wants everyone else to submit. What an oppressor Paul is. But he came with such joy to this Presbytery meeting. And he submits to the brothers. They're my elders. I'm going to do as they ask me to do. As long as they don't ask me to sin against both my conscience or against anyone else. And yet our culture says that all kinds of submission are negative, are negative. I mean, as submission in our culture today, we live in a culture where all submission is considered unwise at best, unjust at least, and at worst oppressive. But that is not the way the Bible looks at this. And this is good counsel for us. Whether you are a spouse Whether you are a child, whether you're an employee, or whether you're a church member, if the direction that you're receiving as one under authority is not sinful, it isn't necessarily bad. I'll say that again. If the direction you're receiving as one under authority is not sinful, it isn't necessarily bad just because it's authoritative. In fact, the Bible says that when it comes to children under their parents and in a in marriage where there's mutual submission and with the civil magistrate, our first response should be to consider a happy yes. Our first response as people under authority should be to consider at least a happy yes. First. Now, if someone is asking you to sin against your conscience or to sin against the law, to sin against the Ten Commandments, that's a different story because you are under a greater authority. But if someone isn't asking you to sin against yourself or someone else, if they have headship over us, we should consider first a happy yes before a no. But you say, wait, Pastor David, isn't this unwise? These men in the synagogue, they they almost beat Paul within an inch of his life he submitted and he almost died for it. Of course, Paul should have disobeyed. Well, first, that was not the goal of these elders. Right? The elders thought actually by Paul obeying that all the tension would go away. They had no idea that people would just overlook uh, Paul's uh, condescending, lovingly condescending to following the law in these Nazarite vows. They had no idea about that. <clears throat> But we do have to recognize that all correct plans, all godly plans can lead to violence or worse. You are commanded, if you're a Christian here today, you are commanded to obey Sabbath worship. You could have died coming here today. Does that mean the command for Sabbath worship is wrong? Obviously not. Obviously not. If, if the outcome is what we're going to judge what happened, the fact that he was put in chains then for the rest of the life, if outcomes are which we're, base everything we do, the ethics that we do, there are a whole host of things that we ought not be doing. Does that mean that it was wrong to obey the scriptures and come to worship? No. This is Paul, perhaps the greatest of the apostles, the author of half of the New Testament, obeying his elders, obeying his authority he not only salutes to the elders, but as we'll see next week in verse 39, he asks the Roman commander for the permission to speak, even though it's his right as a citizen. He also honors the civil magistrate as well, because we as Christians are called to do that too. Once in a while, with our officer nominations, didn't happen in this round, by the way, but it's happened before, once in a while, someone will be nominated to be an officer at, uh, at Hope Presbyterian Church, and they'll say privately, usually, David, I just can't serve as a deacon. David, I can't serve as an elder in this church because I can't stand being told what to do. You know, that's, uh, usually it's added by, that's why I work for myself, <laughs> right? That's why I have my own business. I I just can't bring myself to be under other people's authority. Right? One One guy told me, I just don't suffer fools very well. (laughs) To which uh, I I have to respond. Um, First, what's your marriage like? (laughs) And um, by the way, what would your spouse say about the fact that you don't suffer fools very well? And number two, what do you think the Christian life is about? What we do every Sunday is we worship the author you see, who has authority. All of us are under authority, every single one of us. That's who we are as Christians. We are a people under God. We are a people under authority. He is the author. And yes, we've had people leave our church because we have presbyters and they don't want to be told by human authorities how to live in any aspect of their life. That's okay. But Paul models submission to authority, whether in the church or in the civil sphere, because that's part of of the calling to be a Christian. We are all under authority and we should always consider first a happy yes. Point two, a grace-centered gospel. A grace-centered gospel. Uh, There is no doubt that Paul believes that the, the taking and the paying for this Nazarite vow by these other men is a way of being all things to all people. To the Jews, I behave as a Jew. It's unnecessary, but if by doing it, it pushes aside any offense that, any unnecessary offense that's caused uh, by his behavior so that people might hear the gospel, hear about Jesus, Paul's willing to do it. But here is the thing for us. It is crucial for you as a follower of Jesus to know how Christians are to relate to the Old Testament law. I know a lot of Christians out there who will do almost anything to avoid this question because it seems like you've got to read your entire Old Testament front to back to understand all the stuff about the law in there. And it's, uh, it, it, the, the Old Testament isn't written in such a way where there's a nice little clean chapter on here is what the civil law means. Right? Here is what the ceremonial laws are and the list. And here uh, is the, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments and how they're different. A lot of this you have to you have to read carefully, but we as Christians have to to, to know what this is this is all about. Um, we seem to know that the Ten Commandments still apply, but then our sarcastic brother-in-law insists on th- uh, you know after the Thanksgiving meal we've been digesting our food a little bit that let's all go out back and uh, and and play touch football, but you the Christian over here at Thanksgiving meal you can't play. Because Leviticus 11 says that you Christians, you're not allowed to touch the carcass of a dead animal. So you can't play football. You go clean up. <laughs> we pagans are going to go play football. You see, And suddenly you start to scratch your head and say, well, that is in the Old Testament. And I don't have an answer for why I do like to play football. I watch football and I do touch a dead carcass on occasion. You know, why is it? and our heads explode, and we come to church on Sunday, and we just kind of forget about it. But wh- wh- why? And this then causes confusion, because then, you know, th- th- this gets into issues of why, you know, the head coverings, and why homosexuality, and um, uh, wh- wh- what does it mean about slavery, and, and all these things. And, and so many Christians don't understand these, these issues, or how to read the Bible, Again, we do seem to be aware that the Old Testament has a comprehensive commandments to keep somebody pure and to keep somebody holy. And and we do have a sense that we are to be separate from the world in, in particular ways. Well, this is confusing. You know, break some of these ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. And by the way, you don't get a slap on the wrist. You die. It's death. And yet, we, the elders here at Hope Presbyterian Church do not kill you if you don't get circumcised. But why? Why? Just 20 minutes ago in our worship, we essentially confessed to being serial covenant breakers. Never feels good to do that, right? We're serial covenant breakers. We, so, so how can we think that we might ever come close to a God who has revealed what it means to be absolutely holy and yet we have comprehensively violated his commands on a weekly basis such that we confess it? How do we do that? Whether you are a longtime Christian or you're here today checking out Christianity for the first time, you should know that first, there has historically been a ton of confusion over this, uh, these questions. So feel like you're in good company. Remember, there's confusion right here in Acts chapter 21 about all of this. You're in very good company. You're right there with James <laughs> and John and Peter and Paul. They're working this out. And second, that almost all this confusion revolves around what the Apostle Paul thought and has written about the law. And there have been many who have thought and still think that Paul was completely against the law. Uh, The big fancy word for this is antinomianism, right? That after conversion, this is the the way this, this thinking goes, that after conversion, you no longer need the law in any way. The law is useful for showing you your sin, but after conversion, uh, after you've already been saved, you just don't need it anymore. You now live, this way of thinking goes, in a law-free zone. The Old Testament saints, they're under the law. We're under grace. Right? So that under this way of thinking, there is really very little in the Bible to guide your behavior as Christians, except for what uh, Ian Dugood calls the law of love. The law of love. More and more, this is where, um, uh, for instance, the mainline church is is headed. Ethics are whatever you see modeled by Jesus and the rest of it you just make up on your own. But you live in a law-free zone and the law doesn't have any any weight or impact or usefulness anymore. But, But there are also some people coming along in the church that hold to something that's called the new perspective on Paul, This can be very confusing. But uh, in a nutshell, they say that the law that Paul was against was only the ceremonial law. The Jewish boundary markers like circumcision, like eating kosher uh, food. And that those means of self-justification are gone because now in Christ, the Gentiles come in to be a part of God's covenant by grace. Uh, They go on to say somewhat controversially, that you come into God's covenant people by grace, but you stay in the covenant community by faithfulness to the rest of the law, to the Ten Commandments. Only the ceremonial law goes away, but the Ten Commandments are still useful to keep you in among the covenant people. Now, I fear, I, David, I, your pastor, fear talking about this because when people, when Christians hear the word law, suddenly your heads get very heavy and they start to tilt and then they tilt on the person next to you and you uncomfortably wake up with your head on someone else's shoulder because you have fallen asleep whenever the word law comes up. But this is so important. This is so important. This is not an intellectual debate among scholars. We're talking both about salvation and living out your faith, and it doesn't get more important than that. Answers to what the law is will affect the joy that you have. Answers to what the law is all about will affect the joy that you don't have. So we have to get this right. Some some of us have misguided ideas about the law, and it has been a joy suck in your life. So we ought to get, get this right. So what did Paul teach about the law? Well, the first thing you have to know is what was Paul's old perspective on the law, right? You need need to have a starting point there. Paul had an, there's the old perspective uh, by, by Paul. And that is what did Paul do with the law when he lived as a Jew before he knew Jesus? And thankfully, Paul tells us in Philippians 3 exactly how he thought about the law. He, uh, he uses a, fr- a phrase, he calls it confidence in the flesh. That's Paul's way of saying, in my, in my law doing, in my confidence in the flesh, here's how I thought about the law. And here's what he says. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone th- thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Think of all the, the law doing. I must have been doing as somebody like that. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. I was at the top of the pecking order. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That was good too, Paul thought. And as to righteousness under the law, he said, I was blameless. No one came forward to me and ever said, you've broken the law. I was, I was doing every law the Pharisees had, which were laws to protect me from breaking the law. I did the laws on top of the laws. In other words, if anyone could have rested in their law, keeping to please God, it would have been him. Now, it's very likely that a guy like Paul, a Jew of that day, would have given some of the credit for his achievements, just like the Pharisees in the parable where the the Pharisees, they thank God, I am not like that person or that person. They were thanking God for it. Paul would have given some of the credit for his law-keeping to God. Most Orthodox Jews did not believe that they were saved, in other words, by works alone. They believed they were saved by God's grace plus their ability, plus the ability God had given them to do the works that they did. The technical term for this idea that theologians will sometimes use is they had infused grace uh, <clears throat> when I made coffee this morning, or perhaps you made tea this morning, we used a process whereby the coffee or the tea was, it was infused by, uh, uh, the water was infused by a potency, of flavor that went all the way through the water such that you sipped your, from your cup and you said tea or coffee. Right? Every sip of that cup tasted like coffee-ness or teeness. Well, in the same way, in this way of thinking, God's grace is so infused in you that it enables you to to make and to do good works, which God then sees as righteous and then he rewards. So that Paul's confidence in those days, before he was a Christian, in his own standing before God, came from the works that he did. The grace-enabled works that he did, but either way, in himself. In himself. In himself. God could and would judge him as righteous based on a righteousness that was at least in some sense Paul's own righteousness. But all of that changed at the hinge point of Paul's life on the Damascus Road. That is when everything changed. When Paul met Jesus, both Paul's theology and his sense of righteousness when he met The Holy One, the second person of the Trinity, changed instantly. In that moment, Paul says, he came to see his former source of hope, his source of assurance, his source of peace, his source of acceptance before God as rubbish. Or as the old King James Version used to say it so pungently, as dung, as dung. What he used to think of as his trust and his assurance, he now regarded as worse than useless. In fact, he goes further. He says that what used to make him nice and acceptable to others and to God was now an obstacle to his salvation rather than a source of it. And what makes the new perspective on Paul uh, the wrong perspective is that what Paul calls rubbish could hardly be limited to the things like uh, the markers, like circumcision or his Jewish heredity or to his keeping kosher because any observant Jew would have been doing those things. Everybody was doing those things. No more than that, Paul came to see that it wasn't just his sin against the law and it's commands that were keeping him from God. But his righteous good deeds were keeping him from God. Because Paul thought, I'm really doing this. I got it going on. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He did not know God. He was dead in his sin. He had broken the first, he he'd broken the, 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 the first commandment essentially against pride. He He was his own God. He had other gods. He was God. He was doing it. He was doing it as well as God. Yes, it was God enabled. I put a little hope in God, but I'm really doing it. Such that he couldn't see the Lord of glory. He thought he was meriting part, his part in salvation. What Jesus showed his it was that, that his hope could not come from himself or his law keeping. That it was like the temple of old, that a perfect offering, an offering that had nothing to do with him, was actually needed. We call this uh, in in Christianity an alien righteousness. Not like eh, alien, but 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 a, but a righteousness that, that Paul needed outside of himself, that that the that, that that the sign actually prefigured a reality that he needed, and he now saw in the Damascus Road. He needed a perfect Lamb of God who was spotless, without stain, without blemish of any kind, to to completely cover over both his sin and his prideful righteous good deeds that he was doing to merit his salvation. And when he saw Jesus, he, he saw, even, even in his righteous good deeds, that they were like, like, like dirty rags. As Paul would say in his own words, specifically not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith as a free gift, Philippians 3.9. Friends, this righteousness, a righteousness precisely because it was not his own, but God's, is what gave Paul then a confidence to come before the Lord, right to his throne of grace, with freedom and with confidence. No more did Paul's hope rest on an infused righteousness, hoping that it would counter all of the anger in his life, counter all of the pride in his life, counter all of the sarcasm, counter all of the covetousness, all of the lust. All of the broken promises in his life, it was a free gift. They covered all of it. No room for boasting. Do you see why this is so important? This isn't we're not reading today, as we look at this passage, we're not just kind of examining like a like a little study today. What happened in the church two thousand years ago, as if it only matters to them? We're not studying something that was of interest in the Reformation, though it was. This is an issue for us now. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the fact that you believe you're a good person who relatively speaking, relative always to Hitler and Stalin and all the really bad guys that you can pick up, I'm pretty good. Well, Paul was better than all of that. And when he met Jesus, even the stuff that he was trusting in as good looked like dung. Because even that he was doing to merit God's favor. And God said, to, Jesus said to Paul, what you need is all of me. When are you going to not just lay down your, your filthy, sinful deeds, when are you going to lay down all the trophies you're trusting in? And put your faith in me. When are you going to see it as a gift? So many of us went to the Christmas tree and, you know, the, this weekend and we saw a gift and we didn't recognize the wrapping. You know, a lot of us had examined it already. In the weeks beforehand, we'd snuck under the tree and started to shake things. And maybe some of us peeked under some little loose tape. It was loose. You know, what, <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, And then you came across a present you didn't even see it before. You hadn't checked it out before. Who's this from? This is a gift that you cannot expect. You, You 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 may not know beforehand who 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 is one who would give me this that then overwhelms your sense of yourself so much that it replaces the old, modeled, fakey person that you think you are. So many of us are walking around as, as, as pretenders, trying to look nice, and says, let me reveal to you exactly how sick you are and replace you with the best version of yourself that only I can give you. That's what this gift does. The law is still needed the moral law, to show you how sick you are, but then let him show you how he fulfilled the law for you. It's all of grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for a, a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. Lord, when we're down and when we do break the law fresh, and we will, we will see it, um, show us once again how holy you are. And yes, that we are the sinners that we, maybe maybe we're even worse than we think we are. But the one who shows us that we're far worse than we ever could have thought we were also shows us that you are far more loving and loving of us than we could possibly have imagined in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.